You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Hello, everyone. As always, it brings me joy to see to see all of you here gathered together to worship the Lord and, and, and uh, excited to grow in the knowledge of His Word and of His love. So welcome to you. Welcome to the visitors here this morning as well. If you do have any questions, please, please let me know. I'd be happy to talk to you after the service. Um, so over the, over the summer, we've been going through Hebrews 11. We've been studying through the heroes of faith that are listed in Hebrews 11, or, or as, as they're called, the great cloud of witnesses. And um, for the last couple of weeks, specifically, we've been inspired by the faith of both Joshua and Rahab. And so today, as we enter into the era of the judges, we're going to be going in a little bit of a different direction. We're going to be reminded that without faith, we can do nothing. But that with faith, God can work through even the most broken and flawed individuals, which is an encouragement for us. So if you want to turn with me, we're going to be reading from Hebrews 11, 32 to 34. This is a passage that we're going to be coming back to over the next couple of weeks. Hebrews 11, 32 to 34, it should be behind me on the screen as well. And it says this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. All right, so the author of Hebrews here speaks rightly when he says that time would fail him to tell of all these other heroes of faith, which is something I also should have thought of uh, when I planned the sermon schedule for the summer because we are going to attempt to go through three, the first three of those names which were listed in that passage, and somehow we're going to do it in the allotted time that we have this morning. If I go over time, please forgive me. Um, there's a lot to go through. Um, so... More specifically, we're going to be learning about the faith of Gideon, Barak, and Samson, whose stories are told to us in the book of Judges. And um, I'm also going to take this opportunity to warn you in saying that, the, that if the book of Judges was a movie, it would be rated 18A. I don't see any kids remaining up here, so uh, I think we're okay for this morning, but it's definitely inappropriate uh, for children. Sub- the subject matter is inappropriate for children, for sure. But uh, I'll warn you guys as well what to expect. And we're not going to go into details about things, but it's, it's there. It's in the book of Judges, and so we can't help it. Um, so before we speak specifically about the individual judges themselves, I think it's important that we do get an overview of why these judges were needed, what they were there for. And the simple answer to this is that judges were positioned by God at certain moments in Israel's history to lead the Israelites out of the bondage and oppression over their enemies and into a time of peace and freedom. And this is something which occurs at least 12 times throughout the book of Judges. 
In fact, as one reads through the book, how many have recently read through the book of Judges? Yeah, there we go. Um, I think he's sucking up to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not a book that we, all, we often go to and, and we're like, yeah, I'm just going to get encouraged by the book of Judges because what we see in the book of Judges is there's this repeating pattern or what some theologians call a sin cycle which reoccurs over and over again throughout this 450-year stretch of time. And it begins only a few generations after Joshua dies. Of course, uh, as, as you know, we learned a couple weeks ago, under Joshua's leadership, the, the Israelites, for the most part, they remained faithful in obedience to the Lord, and therefore, by, by the Lord's strength and, and power and guidance, they entered the promised land, and they, they overcame any evil which stood in their way. But unfortunately, this, this obedience, this faithful obedience, it doesn't last. In fact, it only takes them a few generations, it says, for them to forget God. What we're told is that the Israelites actually abandon God, choosing instead to whore themselves. It says actually that, choosing instead to whore themselves over to the worship of idols and the false gods of the Canaanites and Asherites, who the previous generations had failed to purge from the land. This, of course, gets them into a ton of trouble, And ultimately, without God, they repeatedly get overthrown and oppressed by their enemies, by the other nations that are surrounding them. So then they get to a point where eventually they can't take it any longer, and they they come back to God, and they cry out to him for help, who in his mercy and compassion, then what he does is he raises up an unlikely leader, which we call a judge, and, that, and their job was to bring them into freedom and a time of peace for as long as that judge lived. Usually it's a season of 40 years, sometimes more, uh, usually less, depending on the judge. Unfortunately, though, it seems like they don't truly learn their lesson because almost as soon as the judge dies, Israel turns away from God again and this sin cycle repeats itself. So over and over again, we read that the Israelites choose to do what was evil in the sight of God. Or as it says in Judges 17.6, it says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar? This is also the the mantra of our, our current culture today, isn't it? Though it sounds, it sounds more like do whatever feels right for you, right? Or follow your own truth. Or you do you. Or the heart wants what it wants, right? These expressions is basically just saying we're, we're doing what, what is right in our own eyes. John Mark Comer writes, This off-the-cuff saying has entered not only the vernacular, but also the belief system of our generation. It's become a kind of self-perpetuating justification for anything from adultery to chocolate cake, a kind of of get-out-of-jail-free card for any behavior that falls outside the lines of moral tradition. So the belief system of our day, and in the day of judges, is that one shouldn't allow any type of authority or institution like God or the church to control you or, or tell you what to do or how to behave. Because happiness and satisfaction comes from doing what feels good and what feels right to me as the individual. 
Comer again writes, the self, not God or scripture, is the new locus of authority in Western culture. So like, this is the culture we're living in, where the self rules, where, where the self says, I have no need of God. In fact, I am my own God. And this is the oldest lie in the book. And by the book, I mean the Bible. For it was in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell for the lie that they could be their own gods and create their own morality, which is very similar to what's happening in the time of Judges. Because without a singular uh, authority structure to lead them into God's truth or to remind them of what God's done for them, each person just went off and, and just did whatever they wanted, whatever felt good for them. They worshipped whatever idols or false gods fit their own personal desires. They murdered and had sex with whoever they wanted. They fought against other tribes if they wanted their land or possessions. The list goes on. And predictably... Then, as they did what was right in their own eyes, that is, as they, they were led by their selfish and fleshly desires, Israel became this, this hotbed for sin, for violence, for idolatry, oppression, and moral chaos. And they no longer resembled a holy nation set apart for God, which is what they were called to be. They were called to represent God, to partner with God, and to be a blessing for other nations in God's name. Instead, they just looked like everyone else. In one sense, then, the book of Judges is a cautionary tale of what happens in the midst of faithlessness. Proverbs 26.12 calls it like this. It says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. See, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, right? Without faith, though, we have no hope. There is more hope for a fool. Ultimately, the more Israel trusted in themselves, the more they became a people without hope. And on that end, each time Israel did what was right in their own eyes and therefore did what was evil, God, in his righteous anger, would then hand them over to their sin. And of course, its consequences. He'd basically say to them, all right, Go ahead, but you're going to regret it. And they do regret it. Because apart from God, they eventually discover that they're utterly defenseless. They are powerless against the surrounding plundering nations who easily overthrow them, plunder their crops, and continually oppress them for years. And again, it's only during these times of oppression when they start to realize that the self is not as great or as wise as they thought. It's during these times of despair when, when they finally wake up enough to recognize that they need God. That only God can rescue them and redeem them and fight for them and strengthen them and give them peace. And it seems so simple. This truth seems so simple, but right there, that's the defining truth of the greatest men and women of faith. They know they need God. They know that apart from him, as Jesus tells us, they can do nothing. And so again, this is, this is the very reason God hands the Israelites over to their sin and why he allows them to be so easily taken over by their enemies. To teach them this lesson. 
to teach them that they need him so that they come back to him. But over and over again, as I said, generation after generation, they have to learn this lesson the hard way. And eventually, time after time, they have to get to that low place where they finally cry out to God to save them. And again, that's when the Lord, in his unending compassion and mercy, calls that leader, that judge, to bring them out of captivity and oppression and into a season of freedom. And so, while we definitely see that sin cycle in Judges, more than that, I, I, I want to highlight that we also see a cycle of grace. There's a cycle of grace. Because though they don't deserve it, we see that God continually forgives and sets a judge over his people to free them. And he does this over and over and over again, even though they're consistently the worst. Right? This is the merciful character and love of God on display. A love which was revealed for us completely and fully when Jesus came to take on the judgment for sinners once for all at the cross. Right? So over and over we see this love of God already on display in Judges as he raises up an unlikely leader to rescue them from their sinful ways and from their enemies. But yet, as we'll find, even as we, as we look into the stories of these individual judges, we'll find that they too are also a product of their day. And so just like all of Israel, they each have to learn in their own way as well that they need God. They need God and that they can trust Him in faith. Ultimately, they have to learn that it's not them, but that it's God working in them by the power of His Holy Spirit who gives them victory and freedom over their enemies. So first of all, Gideon, he's a prime example of this. His story is recounted for us in, in Judges 6 to 8. And of course, I'm not going to read through all their stories. If, if I did, we'd be here all day. So I'm just going to tell you about them. So his story is recounted for us in Judges 6 to 8. And when we meet Gideon, all of Israel was again doing what was right in their own eyes. And as a result, they had fallen under the hand of the nation of Midian. So these Midianites were oppressing them for seven years, and they were especially cruel because the, whenever the Israelites would plant crops, they would come into the land, joined by the always plundering Amalekites, and they would devour and lay waste to their crops so that there was nothing left to eat. So after seven years of this, this horror and, and destruction, Israel finally calls out to the Lord to save them. And so God sends an angel of the Lord to speak with a man named Gideon, and who he finds hiding from the Midianites in his wine press, where he's trying to thresh wheat without being seen. And the angel of the Lord says to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. But Gideon responds saying, if God is with us, then why did he give us into the hands of the Midianites? But the angel responds, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And again, Gideon responds with doubt. He says, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest, and I am the least in my father's house. So, so right off the bat, we can see that Gideon is not really 
this man of valor, like the angel of the Lord calls him. Rather, our initial impression of Gideon is that he's, he's kind of cowardly, right? He's hiding from the Midianites in his wine press, and he's also full of doubt in both God and in himself. So we have to ask, why then does the angel of the Lord call him this mighty man of valor? Well, it's because God's not looking at him according to who he currently is, is he? But rather, as J.D. Greer says, he sees us and calls us according to what he has predetermined to make us into. God doesn't call the brave. He makes brave those he calls. So the point here is that, is that God's not calling Gideon to trust in himself or, his, or in his own, abil- own abilities, right? He's calling Gideon to trust in him and in what God wants to do through him. He's teaching Gideon that he needs God and that with God, he will be mighty. Which is what the angel of the Lord exclaims next when he says, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. I will be with you. This is the Lord's promise to those he calls. I will be with you. This is a a lesson that Gideon has to learn. As it says in our Hebrews passage from this morning, that God takes what's weak and makes it strong. Right? He needs to learn that his calling isn't based on what he's capable of doing in his own strength, but rather by what God is capable of doing in him. Though it takes Gideon some convincing to surrender fully to God. And because of this, Gideon tests God three times. The first time he tests God, he brings an offering which the Lord consumes with holy fire. The second and third time, he lays a fleece on the threshing floor. And then he asks God to make the fleece wet and the the ground dry overnight. And then the next night to make the fleece dry and the ground wet, respectively. Right? And, and the Lord does these things just as Gideon asks him to do, all in order to assure him, right? to give him assurance, showing that God also has mercy and patience on those who doubt. But yet, even still, Gideon needed to learn that it's not about him. He needed to learn to depend on God. And so once Gideon had actually gathered an army large enough to fight against the Midianites, God's like, no, this won't do. And so he tells him twice to reduce the size of his army so that they know that it's God who's going to win the battle for them, not them. So in the end, God gets him to reduce the number of his army from 22,000 to 300. Only 300 men against a massive army of Midianites and Amalekites. But yet the seemingly impossible occurs. God uses Gideon and these men to accomplish the task and win the victory. After all of that, Gideon finally learns, as should we all, that the battle and the victory belong to the Lord. Simply put that when we depend on God with even an ounce of faith, a faith the size of a mustard seed, as Jesus says, as broken, as imperfect as we are, when we believe in God through faith, God will work in and through us. God will strengthen us. God will bring us into victory. As it says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And this is why Gideon then exclaims to the men of Israel after they ask him to rule over them. He says, I will not rule over you. 
the Lord will rule over you. He's finally learned that it's not the self that should rule, but God. That on our own, we're nothing, but with God, we can do the impossible. That when we allow God to rule in our hearts and in our lives, that's when we succeed. The next judge, Barack, not Obama, just Barack, his story tells a similar tale which we can read in Judges 4 to 5, which actually happens before Gideon, the story of Gideon. So when we meet him, the Israelites again were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and as a result, they'd become oppressed by the Canaanites for 20 years. 20 years! So it took the the Israelites that long to be humbled enough to actually cry out to the Lord to help them. But again, once they do, God, he takes pity on them, He takes compassion on them, and he uses a woman named Deborah who would sit under the what's called the tree of Deborah, and she would act as a prophet and a judge for the people. And he calls her to summon a soldier named Barak and to instruct him that he's supposed to gather his men in order to overtake the army of the Canaanites, which was led by a commander named Sisera. But Barak says to Deborah, I'll only go if you go. I'll only go if you go. Now, this response to Deborah doesn't imply that Barak was, was cowardly, especially since he's a notable soldier already after all. But, but what this does imply is that he doesn't trust the word of a prophet, and therefore he doesn't fully trust in the word of God. Like Gideon then, Barak has his doubts that he can trust God. And so I guess he thinks that if the prophetess is, is with him, he'll be much more secure, or, or that if she was making it all up, she wouldn't be willing to go. But Deborah responds to him and says, Surely I'll go with you. But now the road you are going will not lead to your glory. Rather, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And so after that, they take their army to meet Sisera's Canaanite army, At which point Deborah says to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And that's what happens next. By God's strength and might working in them, Barak and his army overthrow the Canaanites. Unfortunately, though, their commander, Sisera, he manages to escape and and, and eventually he finds shelter in the tent of a woman named Jael. And Jael was the wife of a man named Heber, who was a Kenite, and and was a distant relative of Moses' father-in-law. So there's that connection there. And supposedly, they had previously shown peace and kindness to Sisera in the past, and so he felt safe hiding there. And as expected, Jael continued to show kindness to Sisera by putting a blanket over him because he was tired, by giving him a glass of milk, even though he asked for a glass of water. And then... When he felt comfortable and safe, she placed a tent spike upon his, he- upon his temple and with a hammer nailed it into his skull, thus ending Sisera's life and inevitably the reign of the Canaanites. This also fulfilled Deborah's prophecy that the Canaanites would be overthrown, but that a woman would get the glory of, of killing Sisera instead of Barak. But through all of this, Barak also learns that the Lord's word can be trusted. That if the Lord says he'll do something, he'll do it. That if he calls you, 
He'll equip you and strengthen you to accomplish the task. He learns to depend on God. He learns that he needs God. And in response, Deborah and Barak, they, they sing a song together, blessing the Lord for, for what he did and then through them in order to rescue them from the hands of Canaan. Again, they give God all the glory because they recognize it was God alone who willed and worked all things together for their good. That it was God who fought for them and strengthened them in the battle. That without him, they could do nothing. But with him, they won the victory. And this was also a lesson that the next judge on the list would have to learn the hard way. When we meet Samson, who's probably one of the most popular judges, but also one of the worst, when we meet him from Judges 13 to 16, Israel was again doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and because of that, they had been oppressed by the Philistines for 40 years. 40 years oppressed by the Philistines. And this time, the Israelites don't even cry out to the Lord at all. Completely failing to acknowledge their their need for him. But yet, God still has mercy on them, even while they were sinners. Just like Jesus did for us at the cross. He does this for them by promising a son to a barren couple from the tribe of the Danites telling them that this child should be born as a Nazarite until death. Unbeknownst to them, though, this Nazarite boy would grow up to be the next judge. And for those of you who don't know, a Nazarite is, is, is a Jew who is dedicated to setting themselves fully and completely apart for the Lord in every area of life. In doing so, they would take a vow. And part of this vow included three things— abstaining from drinking any alcohol or drinks made with grapes, not touching dead corpses, and not cutting one's hair. So no alcohol, no dead corpses, no cutting your hair. Okay, we got to remember those three things. So Samson is born into this vow and is even given supernatural strength as a sign of this Nazarite covenant and holy calling with God that he has. Yet, what we find is that he actually doesn't take this Nazarite vow seriously at all. Rather, as we read through his story, he seems to do almost everything possible in order to break that vow. First of all, he marries a Philistine woman because it feels right to him. There's that phrase again, doing what's right in your own eyes. which And doing this negates his being completely set apart for God. And then furthermore, he has a drunken party to celebrate the marriage, which of course is a very specific strike one against his Nazarite vow, drinking alcohol. Though a few days before that occurs, a lion attacks him. And so God fills him with his spirit, giving him the strength to to rip the lion open and kill it, which is awesome, right? But then he comes upon the lion's rotting corpse a few days later and sees that there's a beehive growing inside of it with honey. And so he wants this honey. And so he, he reaches in and he grabs the honey to eat. Again, breaking another part of his Nazarite vow by touching a dead corpse. A few days after that, we can then read that he gets angry at his wife because she went ahead and told 30 Philistines the answer to a riddle he'd given them about the lion and the honey, which results in him losing a wager 
And so he gets really angry, and he murders all 30 of those Philistines. But yet at this point, God still doesn't give up on him because Israel needed a judge to rescue them. And so when the Philistines seek to arrest Samson, they bind him up, but God gives Samson the supernatural strength of his spirit to break the binds, and then he grabs the jawbone of a donkey from the ground, I guess, and he kills a thousand of the Philistine men with it. At which point Samson doesn't even acknowledge God. Rather, he sings a song in praise to himself before he even acknowledges God. He sings with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. Yet, he finally does acknowledge God and then God relents and then miraculously gives him water when Samson, Samson asks for it. But then right after that, Samson goes straight to bed with a prostitute. And so at this point, we can see that while God has given him the strength to overcome the Philistines, he's not actually living for God. He's living for himself. Possibly even with this deluded idea that God's blessed him to do whatever he wants. Like the Israelites that he's meant to rescue, he's just doing what seems right in his own eyes. This is especially the case when he falls in love with a woman named Delilah, who, unbeknownst to him, gets paid by the Philistines to find out the secret of his strength. Most of us know this story, right? She asks him multiple times what the secret is, and at first he just messes with her and he just makes stuff up. But yet each time he makes something up, she tries it. She tries to do that thing, to no avail, of course. But then one day, for some reason, he actually tells her the truth. He tells her that his strength comes from keeping his hair growing, and that if his hair was cut off, his strength would be completely removed. And remember, this is the third and final Nazarite vow, which he, which he hasn't yet broken. But here's the question. Why would he actually tell her that? when he knows full well that she's going to attempt to cut his hair since she already tried all the other things that he told her. And, and the only reason I could think of is that he's become so egotistical, that he's become so prideful in himself that he didn't think his Nazarite vow held any sway at all. He probably thought nothing could stop him. More specifically, he must have felt so untouchable and invincible because of his strength that he could no longer recognize his need for God or that his strength came from God alone. But he'll eventually learn this the hard way. For that very evening, Delilah gets a man to come cut his hair while he slept on her lap. And then in the morning when the Philistines come for him, he can do nothing. He can't fight them off. His strength had finally left him. On his own, that is, without the strength of the Spirit of God within him. He's become defenseless. He's become powerless. And so they easily seize him, and then they gouge out his eyes, which is gross, and then they bind him with bronze shackles so he can't get loose. And the point that, that I really want to clarify this and hammer this down, 
The point isn't that bald men are godless, okay? (laughs) The point, though, is that he'd forgotten that the source of his strength was God alone, right? So the cutting of his hair and therefore completely breaking his Nazarite vow was, was, was symbolic of that. And so it takes Samson going through all of this to finally get humbled enough to recognize that it's not about him, that he needs God. That is, it takes losing everything for him to finally repent and call out to God in faith. And he does this during one evening when 3,000 Philistines had gathered in the temple of their god, Dagon, to worship him and celebrate Samson's capture. At one point in the evening's festivities, they call up Samson to, to, to come up and em- entertain them with his horrid and weak presence. And so finding himself leaning between the two pillars of the temple, Samson finally calls upon the Lord, saying, O oh Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then grabbing the pillars, he calls out to God again, let me die with the Philistines. At which point he pulls apart the pillars with all his might, bringing down the temple of the false god Dagon, which falls upon and kills the 3,000 Philistines worshiping within it. And so it took Samson to come to the end of his life until he finally discovered the secret of faith, the knowledge that he needed God. That apart from him, he can do nothing, but that only in him is he strong and able to be who he's meant to be. And so again, one of the main lessons we've learned from these three judges is that the greatest men and women of faith are the ones who can truly acknowledge with humility and faith and truth that apart from God, they can do nothing. That they need God. They are those who can humbly recognize, like the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 10.23, when he says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. And then like the psalmist in Psalm 44.5-8, who proclaim, through you, Lord, through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. So those who walk in faith like Pastor Blair reminded us right at the beginning of the service, those who walk in faith, they boast in the Lord, not in themselves, but in the Lord, because they know that it's only through Him that they live and breathe. It's only by His hand, through the blood of Christ, that they find salvation and freedom from the pangs of sin. It's only through the strength of His Spirit within them that they find and accomplish their calling. It's only by His might that they persevere with boldness and are kept from temptation and from the evil one. It's only by His wisdom and word that they learn to walk rightly in all areas of life. As the song says, I need you, oh, I need you every hour. I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. That is the cry of the person of faith. 
The greatest men of faith know that they need God. They know they cannot do it on their own. And so they lay down their lives and cling to the Lord and to his word. They spend time in prayer seeking God's face and the guidance of his spirit. They acknowledge him in everything they do. They need him. They depend on him and the power of his Holy Spirit. They're not wise in their own wise. They fear God and they shun evil. This is the foundation of faith. At one point during his ministry, Jesus reveals this very thing to his disciples, saying from John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If we truly believe this, our faith in Christ would never waver. If we truly recognize that apart from the Lord we could do nothing, we'd never even think to dabble in the ways of the world or bow down to idols or even think for a second that we were in any way wise in our own eyes. Rather, we'd cling to the Lord with faith and we would never let go. And what I've personally found is that whenever I forget this foundational truth or I, or I forget to lean on him, those are the days where I, where I start to find myself getting into trouble. Right? I, make, I make poor decisions. I lose my patience. I'm given into temptation. I'm prone to selfishness and to feeling insecure and unsure in myself. Because without Jesus, we're weak. But in him, we're made strong. In him, we're made strong. On our own, we can do nothing. But in him, we can move mountains. As it says in Isaiah 40, 31, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. So in conclusion this morning, as we come before the Lord in the mighty name of Jesus, let us acknowledge with humility and truth our need for him. And so let this be our prayer of faith from Isaiah 12, verse 2, where it says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and, I, and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Let me read that just one more time. Let this be our prayer this morning. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, as we learn from your word, as we learn from these heroes of faith, and we, and we see and acknowledge that it wasn't by their own strength, Lord, but it was because of you. It was because of you working in them that they found victory. Lord, I pray that we can learn from that and, and, and we can remember that, that on our own we can do nothing. Lord, but that in you we are strong. Lord, I thank you for the calling that, that you've called us to go into, into all the earth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in your name, Lord God. 
But I thank you that you also promise to not leave us nor forsake us, that you go with us as we do it, Lord God, that you've promised us the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to enable us, to equip us, to go with us, to lead us as we go, Lord God. And so I pray that you would help us to learn what it really looks like to depend on you, Lord God. Lord, that you would humble us and bring us to the place where we do depend on you, where we can acknowledge, like the great men and women of faith before us, that we desperately need you. And as we depend on you, Lord God, I thank you that you bring us into a place of victory, that you bring us into a place of freedom and joy and peace. And so, Lord, we give you all the glory. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Thank you.